You're listening to Lame Radio, the hottest show this side of Diesel. Greetings and welcome to this episode 14 of Lave Radio, the show that talks about the universe of Elite and the development of the computer game Elite 4, Elite Dangerous. My name is Fozzer Forrester and I am, as ever, your host for this journey through Elite-themed chaos and debauchery that we call a podcast. Joining me tonight is a man who has firmly popped his DDF cherry, Mr. John Stabler. Thank you very much. With him, we have the ever-so-friendly mayor of I.O. Falls and proud owner of a brand new gold watering can, Mr. Christopher Jarvis. Hi. And finally, Lay Radio's very own, soon-to-be Dr. Evil, Mr. Alan Stroud. Cheers, Foz. Evening, gentlemen. How are we all doing? Awesome. Did you get a little mini-me as well, Alan? That would be amazing. A uh, little mini-me. Um, well, no, I've, I've already got a cat that I can obviously sit on the arm of the chair and oh, right. it'll cool. bite my fingers rather than you know let me stroke the back of its head, I expect. But, um, right, before yeah, we get uh, uh, into any more innuendos, do you want to tell us exactly what you've been up to this week, Mr. Stroud, and maybe explain the Dr. Evil quotation? Okay, so I went to my old university uh, where I graduated from with Chris because uh, we, we both went to, to win Manchester back in uh, the late 1990s and pitched my proposal for a PhD and um, it was accepted and I got accepted on to uh, the study of the course so um, yeah going to be a long slog you say soon to be I say to you <laughs> somewhere between three and seven years but um, yeah no it's uh, it's very exciting and uh, you know I'm going to start taking some things into the world of academia and uh, you know ultimately uh, get PhD behind my name to go with some of the other qualifications. Nice thing as well is that it's uh, it's obviously it's a little bit based on um, on elite and some of the other writing that I do. So uh, so yeah, no great stuff, mate. Congratulations, John. Why don't you tell us what you've been up to this week, mate? I've been doing nothing but work on Battle for Station. Yay! And how much have nothing. you achieved? Lots. Um, I'm actually, I've just been testing and testing and testing it to death. Tomorrow, I'm hoping a new controller arrives because I broke my only controller to test it with. So that kind of put me back by a couple of days. But apart from that, no, it's, it's been absolutely fantastic. I'm getting really, really, really excited now. Because I've been waiting for the controller, I, was, I allowed myself to kind of work on some extra stuff, some new features which weren't in the original um, specification. So um, I, I think that's going to be a nice little surprise for somebody. Ah, so the fact that I was going to ask you what you were doing, you're not going to tell us. I've added in a, a progression system so that as people rack up kills, they can actually progress with their weapons and things like that. Um, I'll give more details, obviously, when it gets uh, put into the alpha. So, Chris, what have you been up to this week? I have mostly been working on uh, scripts for second series of Escape Velocity. It's caused me one or two problems, I think largely driven by the fact that because this is my kind of second round at it, um, my standards for myself are much higher. Um, I think first time round, I just thought, you know, it's easy because I was setting up all my plot points. And it's great. You just wing it through your episodes and you make stuff up and this is all great. Um, and then so with the second series, I have to kind of start tying things together uh, and actually making it move in a, in a sort of planned direction. Uh, yeah, so it's just it's, it's, it's proving to be much harder, much more rewarding, but much harder. Slightly longer episode format. Um, I think I'm going for slightly less episodes, but slightly more length in each episode. And yeah, it's just it's just been a challenge, but it's been uh, good. Great. So I mean, the the last season was what twenty minutes per episode. What are you hoping to stretch out to this time? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the decision I wanted to make because I was looking at the kind of audio dramas that I listen to and the formats of stuff that's on the radio and and, and on CD and that sort of thing. And yeah, six 20-minute episodes was kind of a bit odd. And I think I was trying to decide between four full half-an-hour episodes or sort of five eh, 27-ish minute long episodes. So so to like a 27 sort of minute episode is sort of suitable for radio broadcast. And then four full half-an-hour episodes, you're sort of looking at a double CD kind of thing. So obviously I'm limited at the moment with what I can do with Escape Velocity, uh, but it's partly for me to sort of get my head around what writing those kind of lengths means, um, as opposed to the way I did it previously. So it's just a pacing issue, and it allows me, I think, a little bit more character development in each episode. 
Okay, well, this episode we're going to go into depth on a couple of DDF topics, that of mining and passengers. We're going to quickly talk about the sneak peek pictures that Michael Brooks posted up of some of the in-game engine. And we're going to go into a little bit of detail about the fiction stuff and go into community order and feedback. Okay, so starting us off on the DDF topic this week is that of mining. Now, John, I think you've been having a look at this with your new DDF powers. What have you picked up? A lot of people seem very disappointed in that um, they, they've said that they're not going to be able to promise the MB4 mining machine. <laughs> That's something that they're planning on pushing back into an update, perhaps. Everybody was a bit concerned that if it was just going to be mining with lasers, then it's, you know, the word Eve was mentioned, and then there was a feeding frenzy. <laughs> but it, it's been quite interesting. They want to make it more appealing more engaging with players. There's going to be a lot of scanning of asteroids and things like that to actually locate the goodies. It's not just going to be a case of blasting away at a rock and potluck. So there's going to be some kind of element of skill to it, and that seems to be you know, through this scanning. Um, and obviously you can get better equipment, but also they're hoping to you know, somehow make it more like a skill-based minigame. Although a lot of people don't like the idea of calling it a minigame either, so you've got to watch out on that one. Well, I mean... Just sort of looking at the sort of the overview of it, I mean, they're, they're initially looking at three types of resources that you can mine. So that of mineral bodies, frozen liquid bodies, and gaseous stroke dust clouds. And obviously the mining is split into various sections. So as you say, the scanning is going to be the first part, which is that of detection. And then you've got the second part, which is that of extraction, which is going to be more about the, the skill element. I mean, yeah, it's wrong to call it a mini game per se, but you're not going to be doing yeah, what you do in EVE, which is literally select your asteroid and you know, switch on your mining lasers and you know, go and make a cup of tea and come back and your cargo holds full of rocks. So they are going to try and make it so it's a skill-based system. So you will be sort of engaged in your mining operations as opposed to being sort of passively just sat there, uh, which I think is a good idea. I mean, one of the games that came to mind when they were talking about mining for me is a probably a little bit of an obscure one for those people that have got uh, ios devices there's a, a game called galaxy on fire it's kind of like an elite based game in the fact that you can go around the universe you can collect uh, spaceships and stars and shoot pirates and uh, and you can get a mining laser and mine asteroids now the way they work it is that you dock with an asteroid and you have to try and twitch your cursor to get it into the center of the asteroid and the asteroid's moving around and trying to move your cursor out of the the center you've got to move the the joypad and stuff to keep that you know that laser centered onto the middle of the asteroid and if you don't manage to do it and basically as the asteroid depletes it gets smaller and smaller and it gets harder for you to keep your laser into the middle of the asteroid if you don't manage to do it then you basically lose all the resources and, and you get nothing now i'm not suggesting that elite dangerous does that but it's just an example of how you can actually have sort of an active experience when mining as opposed to as we say what they do in eve online which is literally just switch your mining lasers on and wait for your cargo hold to fill up Chris, what do you reckon to this? It's interesting that there's no reference to kind of planetary mining. Um, and I'm wondering if maybe that's something that doesn't work unless you've got the planetary landing option. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, the, the planetary landing thing was always a question of flying down, wasn't it, and, and landing with your MB4s. So unless you're going to do a sort of an auto drone where you could actually you know, hover above the planet and send your drones down to do the mining or you know, launch it down sort of like a railgun style and so it impacts on the surface, it would be difficult to do without actually being able to go down into the planets. But... Looking at it, when they're talking about also miners, they really like the idea, but they say potentially not uh, not for at least one. And these are large deployed devices that can mine at a location over time, allowing a player to collect them at a later date. So basically your MB4s. And they're saying that they cannot be found by other human commanders. So yeah, so that's quite interesting. Although I think I would actually quite like the idea of stumbling across somebody else's uh, MB4 equivalent and you know, trying to hack into it. And that, that would be quite a good minigame, hacking into somebody else's MB4 and seeing if you can steal the contents. It's this offline online thing again, though, isn't it? That's I mean, if it's, if it's ostensibly a single player game with multiplayer elements... You don't want to. You don't want to log into your game and find that all your stuff's gone. Um, I don't know if anybody else thought about this, but the scene in Empire Strikes Back where um, they go inside the creature that's in the asteroid and they go and park the Millennium Falcon and find that there are Minox all over the outside of the ship and they have to go and blowtorch them off because they were chewing on the power cables. This gave a, a you know obviously a, a problem for the for the Falcon. So you know perhaps lack of power in the the engine, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I just really like the the section on the fact that they could disturb some kind of interstellar life, and you had the potential for something like that happening. Yeah, certainly what they're talking about when they're talking about extraction, they're talking about um, you know, there's various things that can possibly happen whilst you're taking you know, the resources out, one of which is contamination, which can obviously occur during the extraction process, um, or even just by collecting and storing the resources, or simply just by flying 
in the vicinity of an asteroid that has this sort of contamination effect around it. And then the second up, the thing they're talking about is void creatures, which uh, they say that space contains a number of base intelligence critters, which can be disturbed whilst detecting and extracting resources. Most of these are hostile and a few can become valuable resources in their own right. Are we collecting uh, void critters to sell on the open market for these, uh, you know, next season's best pet? As Alan said, are we going to be able to have, like, Minoch gloves or something? <laughs> Driving gloves. <laughs> that suck power out of other people. <laughs> you know, or whatever that big thing was that the Millennium Falcon was in. You know, if you could actually get one of its you know, a turf or something, you know, that's the equivalent of future ivory. <laughs> well, it's interesting because what, what it sounds like there, John, is that you're, you're talking a little bit about crafting, which leads us quite nicely onto the, uh, the the prospect of refining, which they have mentioned in this topic. They haven't got it completely nailed down, but they do have a basic crafting proposal in mind for this, which I'm assuming is basically, you know, you collect a certain amount of resource X, you collect a certain amount of resource why and you put them together and the end results you know worth a little bit more on the stock market i'm imagining that's you know the basic crafting that they've got in mind at the moment i would hope they don't try and do anything more complicated than that for the initial release because uh I think it was I picked I saw this in the in the DDF you know there's a few people concerned about the fact that you know they've got a lot to balance on day 1 and to try and throw in a whole sort of detailed crafting system into the mix might just be a little bit too much uh, for people to cope with. I was going to say if you went for a completely cycled economic system that was based on what the players could do then I think I mean there, there is there's a real advantage in that in that you know if the players can manufacture everything can sell everything can can craft everything can can harvest everything can you know effectively so that they have a complete cycle all the way through it means that your your cash dumping your cash holes are quite easy to to note and you can create a you know a full economy but that's a huge thing to set up in the first place isn't it so i think it's probably a wise idea to you know have a couple of proposals that allow players a little bit of the ability to to start shaping resources and and harvesting resources and you know and, and changing them slightly, but then kind of see where that goes. I think that's that's probably a good plan. I think what I dislike about crafting in games is the sometimes the suggestion that all you need to do is kind of collect the resources and then you somehow kind of put them next to each other and they become stuff. And you know, making stuff doesn't really work that way. You don't just you know, if you want to make a car, you don't just get all the component parts and sit with them in your living room and think brilliant now go and it becomes a car and i think actually you know quite often in games i find that the crafting process the th- sorts of things you end up making would require such elaborate fabrication machinery you wouldn't have that on your ship um so for me it's a little bit of an immersion breaker maybe the way i'd like to see it done would be for them to instead of encourage people to craft their own stuff and worry about all the, ba- the balancing aspects of that is that you know you have industrial worlds where you get your raw materials and you take them to the industrial worlds and they're the ones that are doing the crafting and then it's something that the players don't need to worry about so that's how i'd like to see it played out yeah absolutely and i think that's the easy you know it's the easy option isn't it really and and just the, the having some basic refinement available for players i think is a good idea i don't think necessarily that as chris says i don't think we should be talking about complex you know objects so you can't go and get three different types of gas and then make a laser gun i think <laughs> just you know just some small amount of um uh, of refinement i think is fine even from an exterior you know facility not necessarily saying we should go down the the x route and have you know all sorts of refinery elements but just you know some small element of uh, being able to make something a little bit better sell it for a better price i think that's fine i think it's simple it's effective and it suits certainly for the initial release yeah no absolutely and just looking at the various um, elements here, so you've got the, the mineral bodies, the frozen liquid bodies, which obviously is your comets, and then your gaseous stroke dust clouds. Now, what they're talking about in terms of you know, how you would extract the minerals from these, the method of extraction depends on the resource type, but importantly, all methods of extraction require moment-to-moment gameplay that rewards skillful and attentive players. So when they're talking about the, you know, the asteroids and the comets, they're talking about you know, shooting them with mining lasers. Parts of the body will actually break off and produce sort of flecks of resources that will need to be scooped up with a cargo scoop. And then for the gas and stroke dust clouds, these are going to be flown through with an appropriate scoop. And then depending on the accuracy of the flight path, the yield may be greater or less. I mean, they really are thinking about it being sort of a, a skill-based profession. 
uh, as opposed to just being sort of you know the person with the biggest cargo and the biggest uh, mining laser wins the day sort of thing. So I think it's quite nice. I also quite like the idea of you know flying through a gas cloud and following you know, a predetermined path that you've already sort of scanned down. So you've scanned the you've scanned the cloud. You know how dense it is. You know where the resources are, and then your computer gives you a flight path that you need to sort of follow in order to harvest the best you know, or go through the path of the most dense resources. And as long as you, you know, stick to that path, then you'll get the greater yield. I think that's quite a clever way of doing it and one we haven't actually seen before. It's, it's a lot better than just the usual stay, stay at a certain altitude and just keep on scooping. So um, it's definitely a lot better. Um, did anyone else see the, um, the mock-ups that uh, designer Dan put on the, the mining thread? No. Uh, no. Right, yeah, so Dan Davis, there was some discussion about collection of resources and how they're going to be you know separated and and what they're going to do with things like waste and he mocked up these six different slides which basically kind of give an example of how the raw materials come in they get separated into separate hoppers and then once they get to a certain level then you've got your full canister of the of the material and once it's been separated out so that's what the refining process basically is well this is rough i mean i don't know if this is going to be in the game but this is how he's thinking about it the only thing i was going to, other thing i was going to say was um can we read anything into what he's put iron potassium lithium scandium are we going to see this kind of level of detail with commodities that we're going to go down to individual metals because in previous games obviously it was precious metals or metals for use in industry are we going to have um you know a scrapyard as well with the the six procedures that dan has suggested it does give us quite a, a nice interesting different way in which they you know that the refining process on board a ship would work it also i mean there is a suggestion perhaps that only certain sizes of ship would be able to do that kind of refining so you might perhaps find that you turn up there in a sidewinder and you go home with something that's a bit rough and crude and doesn't earn you very much money. You turn up there in a Panther Clipper or, I don't know, you know, whatever's in the ship list. And um, Bob's your uncle. You end up with all sorts of different uh, stuff. Yeah, and just yeah, because what you'd be able to do is, as you said, sidewinder, you'd just be picking up dust and you'd have to take it somewhere else to be refined. Whereas a big ship, you'd pay the extra, you'd lose probably maybe a considerable amount of cargo space. But what it means is you get to flush the rubbish into space and you just get to keep the good stuff. Yeah, we need to obviously work out somewhere that we're taking our rubbish to. And I think we should start a drive here, um, considering things are a little bit um, slow at the moment in the, you know, the developments from Frontier. I think we should start a drive from the podcast to indicate a place where every player should take their rubbish to um, in the game. And um, I think we should all go to the same place and drop our rubbish there. How about Slough? Yeah, I was going to say Slough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, isn't that art, okay. yeah, art mimicking real life? I, I think, why, why don't we open it up to our listeners? We could kind of say to them, email you know, address info at laveradio.com. Please make a suggestion as where you'd like to see all the rubbish go. And we will <laughs> recommend that to all our listeners. At the moment... Number one consideration, you guys have submitted it. Slough is currently the place where we're going to drop all our rubbish. Well, to be fair, the only person there is some crazy cat lady anyway. So, <laughs> yeah, Kate's already said she's going to shout at people. Let's give her reasons to shout at people. <laughs> Unwanted fly tipping in her system. That seems fair to me. <laughs> Although, uh, in fairness, guys, if you, uh, if you just have sort of people randomly dropping rubbish all over a system, then it does at least give the, you know, the, the clan of orange Asbo Sidewinder something to do in every single system, you know? <laughs> yeah, but that's where do the orange Sidewinders take it? Slough. <laughs> That's even better. <laughs> well, it, it also means, you know, if you want to, like, pick on a prisoner, if you put all the rubbish in one system, you know all the orange sidewinders are going to be there. And who's going to give a prisoner a gun? Nobody. <laughs> There's a boatload of ships there that you can shoot down. That'd be great. <laughs> well, I think uh, I think that'll do it for the uh, the current proposal into uh, the mining. It's definitely one that people have really sort of latched onto. I mean, we're up to nine pages, and I think the uh, the post count somewhere in the four hundred mark now. So it's definitely one that the uh, the community is really getting behind to try and shape. So uh, we'll as soon as we have a revised proposal, we'll come back and report on that for you. Which moves us on to the next topic in the DDF, and that of passenger cabins. Now, obviously, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, David's development diary. But but uh, most of David's development diary actually consisted of the topic of passenger cabins. And the, the DDF proposal goes into a little bit more depth about what we can expect from that. Chris, I believe you've been reading on this. 
Why don't you tell us a little bit more? I'll start with highlighting something that was a little bit, little bit controversial, maybe, that came out of this, and that I'm hoping is going to be something that maybe wasn't communicated right um, or was just something they were thinking about. But there was a, a comment in the, in the original proposal that outside of these passenger liners, if you had a ship with a passenger in a cabin, that that passenger travels in stasis. So the idea being that all passenger cabins, other than the ones on the luxury liners are basically frozen sleep modules and not actual travelling passenger cabins. Now, for me, I, I didn't like this because I think there's a couple of things that, that I don't like about it. One is my kind of hope for the later expansion where you can walk around your ship is that when you've got a passenger cabin, you'll see an NPC sort of down in the bowels of your ship, you know, making a bowl of noodles or chilling out or whatever and, you know, kind of give you that sense of immersion. But it also occurs to me that doesn't it, wouldn't it just break an awful lot of the fiction? In what sense? Just in the sense that any story involving someone with a small ship that's taking a character with them, that character can take no part in the story because they are frozen. Yeah, I completely agree with that, Chris. Um, I've actually have just got to a scene that involves this very specific point. And yeah, I'd, I'd really like to see them revise this because I, I get that if they're going to produce passenger liners or dedicated passenger liners as part of the, the ship complement that's in the game then you want to give them a, a specialism and you want to make them the best at doing this particular thing. But I think you should be able to, on certain ships, you should be able to, for more money than, than, than it's actually worth, you know, to be cost-effective or whatever, grade the cargo area into something that's, you know, that's luxury. Uh, for example, if there's an Imperial courier in the, uh, in the game or an Imperial explorer or an Imperial trader or you know any kind of ship like that, then surely an important dignitary from the Empire is going to be on one of those. So why on earth would you transport them in stasis? Well, I think, I mean, it's a very easy fix to do if you think about it, because you can just have more stages. So if you have your basic, basic, basic passenger cabin that gets you into the passenger cabin missions or the, you know, the carrying passenger missions, you know, you have people that are prepared to travel in stasis, uh, which means you don't have to have a luxury uh, passenger cabin for them. You can have the, you know, the bog standard, the bottom of the rung passenger cabin, but it still allows you to, you know, get your foot on the ladder of transporting people from place to place. And, you know, obviously all the reputation bits that go in with that. So, you know, getting them there on time, making sure that you don't blow them out of the airlocks, that sort of thing. And then once you have a, you know, a larger ship that has maybe more space or you have more credits or you have more reputation, then you can move up to the next level of passenger cabin, which allows you to carry around unfrozen passengers. And it goes on from there. And is it just me, but now that um, jumping from system to system is practically instantaneous, the whole idea of stasis seems less and less suitable. Yeah, you know, yeah. Whereas before, if you were going to be travelling, you know, say, 14 light years, it's going to take two jumps, you're looking at two weeks, then you know, stasis might be you know, of interest. But considering now everything has to be instant because of the multiplayer, um, I don't know, it just doesn't quite fit as well. Hi. I'm Trent Stephen Findlis Jr. and I'm here to tell all you pilots about a great new service. Take a listen to my friend, Pete. My name is Pete and I'm a long distance haulier. I drive a Puma shipping farm machinery from Leasty to Sueo. I love my family and I don't mind being a hard working blue collar dad, but I'm tired of seeing my family grow old in front of my eyes. Every time I make the run there and back I lose 15 days in hyperspace. My family is starting to notice that they're getting older and I'm not. My wife had a baby last week, did a week of shifts and now my kids got teeth. I wish there was some way my family could get old at the same speed as me. There is, Pete. How? By buying into my new service, Findlist Cryogenics. We aim to put the freeze on the premature ageing of your family. The process is simple. Our unique family centres allow you to drop off your loved ones on the way to work. Simply hire the number of cryogenic pods you need and keep your family asleep while you fly among the stars. We ensure synchronicity with your flight patterns so they spend the same time awake that you spend in the cockpit. And when you get home, bingo! Your family is the same age as you. Never lose family time in hyperspace again. We guarantee that you'll never miss another birthday, anniversary or funeral. Wow, Trent. That sounds great. Where do I sign? Simply put your credit card details into our special webpage under the hashtag WeFreezeYourLove. We'll take care of the amounts. No need to worry about that. It's so simple. I can't wait to keep my family in a secure block of ice. It's a weight off my mind. Findalist Cryogenics, now at your local spaceport. Findalist Cryogenics, 
because the family that grows old together goes cold together. I mean, you could look at it a different way and say that you know maybe there's a you know, a range issue about uh, who gets frozen and who doesn't. So if you're jumping say five systems out as opposed to two, then maybe that that sort of extended journey is worth putting someone in stasis for, as opposed to you know if they're just hopping over to the next system. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm getting I'm getting the overwhelming <laughs> feeling here from you guys that you're not loving the stasis idea whatsoever. No, I think I think the thing is one of the designers sort of came back and commented on the thread saying that that obviously what they're trying to stop is if you've got a passenger liner which is largely without weapons, without armor, that kind of thing, and then you've got someone with an anaconda that's big enough to fit, for the sake of argument, you know, fifty passenger cabins. Why would anyone use a passenger liner rather than an anaconda to sort of travel around the dangerous reaches of space? But I think it comes back to the whole elite ranking. If I'm going to go on holiday and I'm going to go somewhere where, you know, maybe crime's a bit of a problem, you could argue I'd be better off going on holiday in a nuclear submarine. You know, I could get a cabin on a nuclear submarine, I'd have an armed escort all the way there and all the way back. But if I'm going on holiday, I kind of want to stay in nice accommodation. And that's what the difference between the two kinds of ship is. And so bringing it back to the elite ranking, if you're trying to up your elite status as a kind of luxury tour operator, you're not going to do it shipping people around in, you know, four by four unit cabins in a ship that's largely designed for trading or combat. You're going to get those ratings by having a really nice ship and taking people around in luxury. Yeah, I agree. And I think as well, there's a very clear connection here. You can you can take that point and move it a little bit further in that what about if you're a particular type of holidaymaker? If you take a, you know, a sort of translated allegory from, you know, our current society, perhaps you've got two different types of holidaymaker. One person who wants to go in luxury and travel in style and they're going to pay the extra money. And one person who's a backpacker who's looking for an adventure. Well, if you're a backpacker that's looking for an adventure, we'll chuck you in the back of an anaconda and we'll take you somewhere dangerous. And I, I think, you know, I mean, we can kind of equate this to different companies. Different companies would cater for different styles of holiday. And I think that's, you know, that's, that's just easy. So it means as well you can, you can grade the, you know, the purchase price of different guests. You can work out how the trade's going to go. And you can put the liners right at the top of this, this tree and make them earn shitloads, you know, and then it will work. But we can tie into the other show, Retrolabe, because obviously we played uh, Wing Commander Privateer. And one of the things that was highlighted as a problem uh, with the experience we had looking at that game was that in order to make the experience of building up your ship, you know, more of a sort of progression, things were taken away from you, things that you were used to having in that game series. And it made it very unsatisfying. And I think actually the thing to look at here is what additional stuff you can offer in terms of gameplay with passenger liners rather than looking at what you're taking away from, you know, normal normal pilots, you know, starting point pilots. I think so, yeah. yeah. No, I completely agree. I mean, it's also interesting if you, you know, looking at uh, you know, the expansion that they've got to this topic, when it comes to ferrying around your passengers in stasis, the only sort of, sort of ranking system on that is going to be making sure that they get to where they want to be at a certain time. When it comes to conscious passengers, then there's various other sort of uh, missions that will actually sort of become available once they're on your ship. So, you know, for example, if they are you know, a daredevil passenger you know, who wants some thrills, then maybe they'll ask you to take them to a dangerous part of space or do something like you know, fly four times uh, around a comet or something like that. Something, you know, whilst they're on the ship, they give you extra missions to earn a little bit of extra rewards. It'll be quite nice to you know, still have that possibility available to you, even if you were flying a non-passenger liner ship. Because if you were just to have passengers in stasis on the normal ships then you'd lose out on all those missions and that's not to say that you know the passenger liners shouldn't get more of those missions or more of those missions should be available to them but you know some elements of those sort of expanded missions should be available to you know your your cobra mark threes of this world yeah because if you don't do that then obviously no one's gonna dip their toe into you know to that sort of area of gameplay and then be interested in buying a different type of ship are you well, you get some crazy people out there that will do anything, but I, I know what you mean. It's it's not going to be a mainstream option unless people can dip their toe in, as you said. But apart from that one point, I thought, you know, most of the rest of the proposal made a lot of sense, you know, when they were talking about things like, you know, making deals with passengers. So now it's not just going to be a straightforward case of they say, this is how much money um, you're going to actually be able to bargain with them, take less money off them, perhaps, if you're going to take a bit longer, or, you know, maybe you can just negotiate with them. 
if you get there late, there may be a renegotiation. Or if you're really, really late, they may just disappear and you won't see any of the money. Uh, but negotiation will also cover the, the idea of having some up money up front as well. Yeah, exactly. So you can, you know, you can suggest that you get paid half in advance or, you know, all of it in advance. And, you know, that's, uh, that would be based on your reputation. So if you have a great reputation, you know, you'll get all the cash, you know, the moment you take the job on. Uh, if you have a really bad reputation, you might only get paid sort of on completion when you've uh, you've got there on time, as it were. Yeah, you could also add in, I mean, potentially if you, if you involve the corporations directly, then say, for example, if you're looking at individual passengers, you might make that negotiation. Whereas if you're running uh, one of the liners, you might actually take a commission directly from a leisure company that is going to recruit an entire package holiday and is going to recruit 300 people for you and put them on your liner. And then maybe even they'll offer you a decal that you've got to stick on the side of your ship whilst you do the run, which I think would be really funny. So, yeah. you know, that would, that would kind of work. And that, that gives you a really good gradient difference you know, say if the major corporations are only prepared to deal with somebody who has got the kind of quality ship that they, you know, that they want, and then the bargain basement or the adventure holiday package deals, and the, you know, the corporations that deal with those go on the lower stuff. I think that would work. I just got the image of Alan, the trolley dolly, in my mind. <laughs> now. He's got his decal and he's uh, put his blue skirt on. Fantastic. Yeah, your your nearest exits are here, here, here. In event of emergency, oxygen will drop down. Yeah, obviously. And I'd just like to reach out to our wonderful community photoshoppers out there. If you want to make that uh, image a reality, then I think a lot of us would like to see it appearing on a Facebook page near you. I don't, I don't know about you. like to see it, you know. <laughs> I was going to say that, my, you know, as a show carrying kind of one or two passengers, most of them turned out to be criminals that had pirates after them anyway. It's a very different class of people you're dealing with when you're transporting them in an armed ship. Most of them are wanted for something. Or spies. Or assassins. Yeah. Or murderers. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, this was one of the things that the um, that Frontier asked the DDF as to what type of passengers uh, we would like to see appearing in Elite. And you know, I think there were some quite interesting suggestions. So you'd have things like, um, you know, potentially you could take some scientists that wanted to, uh, you know, fly close to supernovas or you know, various astronomical features so they can get some readings. You can take um, uh, honeymooners out and they might want to go to a particular sort of a pretty part of the galaxy. You know, you can take businessmen, people that that need to get to somewhere very very quickly and various sort of things so there's been quite a few uh, suggestions put through from the uh, the guys on the ddf there's been quite a few suggestions as well which i thought were quite funny around the yeah what happens if you want to say well okay uh, to hell with my reputation as a passenger liner i'm going to leave this career behind and i'm going to kidnap all these people on my passenger liners is there a possibility that you can then take them as uh, and sell them to the imperials as slaves or you know could you possibly then um, you know jettison, uh, jettison them for or uh, fertilizer <laughs> or, or you know, what other options are available to you once you've got these people i mean could you then sort of take them and maybe to offer a ransom on them anything like that which uh, i think would be quite an interesting uh, an interesting avenue to explore with this as well two words space doggers <laughs> <laughs> what <laughs> So they're all going to be parked behind a moon somewhere <laughs> i was going to say what's the equivalent of a galactic lay-by <laughs> Slow. And then they, you get in your spacesuit, and then you uh, use your jetpack <laughs> to land on a ship. You can peek through the window. Yeah. Hey, that's the second expansion. You, 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 you'll see. <laughs> Space dogging, coming to an expansion near you. Mm. <laughs> well, there's already mentions of floating brothels. Uh, it didn't take long for somebody to think of that. <laughs> yeah, there was floating brothels. There's been uh, prison ships, which I thought was actually quite a nice idea if you were, uh, you know, Carrying uh, prisoners from one uh, prison uh, from one prison base to another, especially if you could dock with it, and they had a justice field on it, that'd be amazing. <laughs> Stag parties. <laughs> oh, in fairness, there, were, there was a really good post on the DDF. I can't remember who posted it about you know transporting rock bands around and you know and running the risk that you know you might have some interior damage done to your ships because you're carrying a particularly rowdy, uh, famous rock band from A to B. That was you, wasn't it, Stabler? Yeah, was that, was me. <laughs> that was me. From my perspective, um, one of the things I'm really looking forward to, obviously the passenger liners, I still maintain <laughs> are some of the most beautiful ships we've seen so far in any of the space sims that we've seen so far. And that includes EVE Online, that have got some gorgeous looking ships. I really can't wait now for the expansion where you can actually walk around these things and you know see a nice sort of hydroponics bay, uh, see a swimming pool, you know, and talk to the NPCs that are on your luxury liner. I think that would be a, you know, a quality addition to the franchise. 
Okay, so that's going to do it for that DDF topic. But actually, it does link us quite nicely into the Elite Dangerous Dev Diary number five, where David Braben talks mainly about passenger liners. What did the guys think about this? I think the Dev Diary actually was a, a little bit light this week, um, to be fair. The mo- main topic was concentrating on the passenger ships and sort of talking about it. And I think, I mean, Frontier are, are quite... I think it's quite clever and and a good idea to mention this in the dev diary because this does go to a a different group really. I mean obviously the frontier forum people and you know and backers and everybody else will see it, but you're also because it's on YouTube, it's also something that will be seen by other people as well. So kind of highlights a bit of a USP for, you know, for the game because you know this kind of passenger liner idea isn't necessarily something that's explored as much or in as much detail in in other games. So I thought that was you know, good idea to focus on it. A little bit of a shame, obviously, that because it's come out at the same time as a DDF topic, from our point of view, it does cover a lot of the same ground. So, really, it got more interesting when we got on towards the questions. Yeah, and the first question off the bat was from our very own Mr. John Stabler. And they slightly abridged your question straight down to, uh, what would happen in Elite Dangerous if a pilot attempted to fly their ship through Saturn's rings? Now, what was the question you were really trying to get answered, John? That was the basic question, but I'd actually there was more paragraphs either side of it, and I'd, obviously the rings around Saturn and, and a lot of these other gas giants, you find that um, it's not just big boulders of rock. You know, there's quite dense fields of you know ice and things like that. So um, it would be pretty difficult to fly through it without actually hitting something. And as we all know, in space, if you you know you're traveling at stupid speeds, and if you hit something, it's going to cause a massive damage to, to your hull. So I was just wondering. More than anything, you know, is are the ship's shields going to be able to protect you from those very small shards? Obviously, they're not going to protect you from the big rocks. But he kind of answered it because he said, well, it's going to be like you saw on that um, one of those first videos that we saw during the Kickstarter where you had those long, big fields f- full of big rocks. And they did show that you were able to fly between them and, and through them. And he kind of answered it, yeah. Um, well, I assumed that John's question was about sort of environmental persistency, that if you've got like a feature like Saturn's rings, which you could potentially interact with because they're rocks, you know, what would happen if someone ploughed like a big ship through the rocks and left like a scar in it, whether or not that would kind of stay there. That, that's what I assumed your question was about. Well, that's a good question as well. <laughs> I'm kind of hoping that they do have a very clear system in terms of um, whether ships can survive through those kind of debris fields, say either a, a ring or through asteroid fields and other bits and pieces, because I've got one or two scenes that involve dodging through asteroid fields. So, <laughs> sorry, mate, but uh, I'm assuming that you and pretty much every other elite writer is probably going to have a, an asteroid-themed uh, scene in their book at some point. Well, yeah, you know, and and I mean, I was going to mention it earlier when we were talking about mining lasers. I've got. One, two scenes that involve mining lasers. So I'm kind of <laughs> hoping that, you know, that these systems are going to be fairly robust and workable. And, uh, yeah, it's going you to didn't be... include an MB4, did you? No, no, I didn't. No, I, I, I did include somebody having a dogfight with a mining laser and, and really coming off badly. Okay, going from one good question to another, this one came in from Fangrim, which was, uh, will the NPC capital ships that we've seen be destroyable by players, uh, single or in groups, uh, or are they just simply too massive for us to even make a dent in? I must admit, when I've seen the you know, the big cruisers and the big sort of capital ships, I have always thought that they pretty much look like a you know, a space station, and they will act in the same way, and that uh, you know they won't be destructible. But according to Mister Braben, it's something that they are looking at. So you know, it would take a team of you, and it would take a, a long time to do it. But yes, potentially you could take down those capital ships. What do people think about it? It's a bit like those old big sort of grey square things that used to sit outside the space stations in Frontier. I'm not sure, were they, were they destructible? I have this vague memory that they were, yeah, this vague memory that they were sort of impervious. I think it depends what you're going for. If you're going for the sort of big Independence Day style thing of gradually whittling this massive thing down until it sort of, you know, gradually the whole thing explodes, or whether it's, I guess, more like you have a bit in sort of naval combat where the idea is to kind of disable a large ship and make it you know in naval battle terms it's about destroying its ability to fire back or its ability to steer or you know its general seaworthiness it's not necessarily always about sinking it and i wonder if there's an analogous thing with these big ships whether you take out their engines or take out their weapon systems it's not actually about total destruction well that 
comes across really well in Tachyon, doesn't it, that we've featured on Retrolave, where um, they've got a really interesting way of targeting sections of large ships. So you can disable engines and you can disable you know other, other elements of the ship, which I think was really interesting. I think, to be honest, having the... Just having the fact that the the large ships are destroyable, that's awesome. You know, I want that. Yeah. I don't want them to be permanent. I think it's a bit rubbish if they're a bit too protected. You know, mapping the cause and effect of, you know, those kind of things happening, I think is really interesting. And it will make the universe very, very dynamic. Do we not run the risk, though, that unless it's linked with a specific event, and I think David Braben actually hinted, you know, that there will be in-game events where this kind of thing is going to happen. But if it, all it takes is enough players to get together, is that not going to encourage just people to form large groups and then go around just ganking whatever, you know, capsule ships they can find? Well, they kind of can't, because if you think that, you know, the instancing system is going to prevent them all being together in one place. And we don't know how the mechanics between instances are going to work in terms of damage accumulation. In addition to that, if you're a battleship or a, a cruiser, you're going to have support vessels, so you're going to have things with you. And I would suggest that you would have to have an awfully large amount of recycling and recycling and recycling of player ships to be able to take down that large amount of, of stuff before we, you know, um, before we see something get destroyed. Okay, another question covered in the dev diary, that from jero123 he basically says video games have come a long way since elite and frontier games in general are more intuitive and casual than they ever were before that is especially true for games that have been traditionally hardcore how do you see elite dangerous fitting into these new standards now yeah david wasn't really up for giving labels to a type of game and what sort of gameplay it involves so i think it's quite interesting from the community perspective because one of the things that we hear a lot about when we're doing the show is that you know quite a lot of the guys are from the older generation they're not going to be able to sink as much time into uh, elite dangerous as they would have liked to or all that they did when they were younger playing elite or frontier so i mean for some people would you say this was going to be a casual game even though you know it's got the complexity to be what you'd call a hardcore game alan okay i think here what we've got is there's one really interesting element that um, is certainly is a, a different way in which your games have evolved in that we all kind of, you know, perhaps this is our age or perhaps this is, you know, sort of in general, we all kind of have moved past the idea of starting as the rookie and starting as um, Dungeons and Dragons at wizard level one with a shit spell that, you know, has to then progress to actually get to become the character or become the person that we want to be in the game that we're choosing to play. And I think in this, in Elite Dangerous, the, you know you want progression. You want there to be an evo- uh, evolution of what you're attempting to do. But actually where you start, you want to be in some way competent. You, know, you don't want to end up starting with nothing and having to sort of move on and move up really you know, at a steep rate in the first part. And we certainly found this in where we've revisited a lot of old games where they've started us off at a very under-resourced position where we have to work incredibly hard to, to sort of pull up to where we want to be. Now, I think that as long as they don't calibrate us right down to that horrible rookie at the beginning and they, you know, they give us a decent sort of starting point as things go, then that kind of buys into the social gamer. And I think from that point, to my mind, it doesn't matter that much in terms of where you go from there, as long as the choices are available for you to go somewhere and to go somewhere and enjoy what you're you're going to do. So I think that's you know that's where I'd be. And and I think yeah, one of the other things that's come up obviously with the older games is that in terms of games being accessible, one of the things we've found is that where we've struggled with some of these older games is that we don't have the manuals. One of the things that's come up is that actually, you know, I wouldn't expect now to have to read a manual before I could play a game that comes out. I would expect the game to teach me how to play it. And that's become fairly standard parlance with most games, whether it's a a very explicit tutorial or whether it's within the design of the game that you figure out how to play it. And I think there's positives and negatives. One of the things I find with modern games is that if I have a save point sort of halfway through a game and I go away for six months and then I come back to it, I actually can't remember how to play it. And without starting the game from the beginning, you know, you don't get that tutorial that reminds you what all the keys are. But I think I think there is a much bigger expectation now of just being able to fire up a game and be kind of led into the experience. 
No, I think you're absolutely right, mate. And I think there'll be people listening to the podcast that are nodding along with you when you say that, you know, you revisit a game six months later and you can't for the life of you remember how to play it. So I certainly did that with uh, Skyrim and also uh, with Fallout as well. What I wanted to add, and it was kind of, it kind of goes exactly with what Alan said uh, in, in that I was watching the GDC talk that David Braben did a while ago where he talked about Elite um, and he was talking about when he was developing it. Um, he was really worried that publishers didn't want to touch it because it wasn't, uh, an arcade game. Um, it didn't fulfill the usual, you know, you get an extra life after 10,000 points and you get three lives and that's it. Um, and it was a real mold breaker. Now, with Elite Dangerous, by the looks of it, they, they want to try and break the mold of this progression thing where everyone starts out almost, you know, as a beggar in the smallest shit possible. And they're going to then spend the next three months of their life grinding away till they get into, you know, something which is of interest or the end game, as some people call it. I, I, I think that they can basically, they can have a clear conscience with what they've done with offering anyone who's put like 30 quid or more in, they're going to start in a Cobra, and, or they have the choice to. Because if you think about it, Cobra's quite a large ship. If you think about it in previous games, it would have taken you, you know, a while to get there. So it's, it's good that they feel confident in the game, that there's enough to do, that, you know, they don't feel that they need to stick you on the bottom rung of a ladder somewhere and make you work your ass off. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, well, that's going to do it for that section. We'll move on to the final piece of development news, the one that we missed, actually, from last week, and that's the, the sneak peek that was put up by Michael Brooks, possibly, I think, just to shut our very own John Stabler up, who kept on asking about in-game footage and videos and how what the game... Yeah, it was definitely you. You've been going on about it for <laughs> ages, mate. The sneak peek basically depicts a uh, scene where you've got two ships. They both look like sidewinders to me, flying through what looks to be the two main uh, structures of the Federation capital ship, the Federation cruiser. And they're obviously sort of chasing each other down uh, in a dogfight scene. And if these are in-game engines, which Michael Brooks says, everything apart from the last one, which has been slightly touched up by uh, post-effect artists, just to uh, provide a little bit more sort of eye candy. If these are in-game shot guys, if these are in-game shots, guys, they're absolutely gorgeous, don't you think? I thought they were quite good. I th- for some reason, I thought they were trying too hard with like the kind of Star Wars trench run kind of theme. But then I thought, well, not been funny. As soon as you got a little ship and you see one of those big capital ships, what's the first thing you're going to do? You're going to want to try and fly through it, aren't you? Yeah, definitely. What's interesting is the last one of these images, I don't know if it's the muzzle flash that's been put on by a 2D artist, but it's interesting the way that the guns on the front of the Sidewinder kind of have a muzzle flash and like a smoke trail from some sort of uh, some sort of mass-driven shell. It's interesting that it's that they've gone for rather than a laser. Because I can't remember, we did discuss the weaponry, but I seem to recall it was, wasn't it lasers, missiles, and was there, was there mass-driving weapons in there? I think there yes. was. Yes, there was. Okay, yeah. I just think, I think it's interesting because it's nice they've gone for a kind of um, almost a World War I sort of dogfight kind of thing with these machine guns rattling away on the front of the ship quite nice well i think that's what the kind of the sidewinder kind of evokes isn't it it's that small tight dog fighting craft so i'm sure a lot of people would want to have a go in one uh, regardless i liked the number of sparks and, and things there was so many particles on there mm. that uh, i definitely know that i'm going to be needing to upgrade my machine when the time comes see i wasn't as impressed by the screenshots to be honest Go on then, Alan. Tell us why. Well, there were there were a couple of reasons. One was that we had this video for X Rebirth come out um, in the last week, which does look absolutely stunning, but there are some severe game restrictions, like you can only have one ship, and it's the same ship, and you can't you know do this, do that, which is a real change for the X series. But actually, the the graphics look utterly stunning and i think you know because there's motion there it kind of gives it you know everything that's um it's working the other thing was that i felt that the spaceships and it might be just me in terms of the way i'm looking at it but i felt the spaceships looked like they were in a different layer to the background environment i didn't feel that the two environments were actually part of the same image and it may be only tiny but you know they've obviously assured us that they are but it did look like i mean we know that from a lot of the artwork that's been done in the the fan forum and you know things that have been produced is basically is spaceships stickered on the to the top of, of pretty pictures my worry here was that actually that we had a bit of a spaceship sticking on to a very pretty game engine. I'm hoping that's not the case. You know, I'm hoping that, that it's there. But the blend between the, the ship and the background doesn't quite look right to me. 
I think that's because of the jagged edges. I think that well, once they have the, the filters working in-game, a lot of that will be smoothed out and it won't be so jarring, I don't think. Okay, well, that's fine then. Um, yeah, they are, you know, don't, don't get me wrong, I'm not being overly critical in that they are gorgeous and there's some lovely, you know, layering effects and I love all the detail and the other bits and pieces, but I was just a little worried that I was going to look at ships and think that those ships weren't blended into the environment that I was actually flying through. It's possibly a lighting issue as well. They do look a little bit like, you know, sometimes when special effects are been composited badly and the, the, the foreground objects I'm thinking particularly of Wing Commander 3 uh, the foreground objects don't quite look like they match the background and it's just because your eye is quite good at picking up when two objects in the same image haven't been lit from the same direction and I yeah. wonder if maybe in this game engine they've got some pre-baked lighting into some of the textures and and maybe that's not actually reflective of what the the final thing will look like. Yeah, it's one of the things that actually that makes the Harry Potter Quidditch scene in the first couple of films look particularly bad because they actually used a lighting source from a different direction as to where the lighting source was in the background. <laughs> so you know they the the kids stand out as not really being there um, when they're in the you know when they're in the crowd scenes. So yeah, it's possibly something like that or the anti-aliasing or something else. I just thought there was just something that didn't quite blend these two things together. So. I'm kind of hoping that, you know, that that will get rectified and, um, you know, it'll all be all be good. I think you'll find that a simple, you know, case of a bit of anti-aliasing will make it look so much better. A lot of people complained about it and um, Frontier came back. I think it was Ashley, wasn't it? Who came back and said, well, um, you know, we, we it, it's not there at the moment, but it will be there, you know, soon. Um, oh, sorry, no, it was Michael Brooks that said that. But then in a, in a separate thread, I believe um, somebody was calling out for more video and no, it wasn't me. <laughs> Uh, I think Ashley said that um, they didn't want to put any video out because it wasn't final and so that they didn't want to um, disappoint people. But I thought that was just a bit of an odd statement to make considering that uh, only a week before Michael Brooks couldn't contain himself any longer and had to send <laughs> send us all some in-game screenshots. So uh, it's a bit odd, really. Well, no. you know, they're good. They're good. So, you know, it's I, I think it was good to put them out, but, um, you know, with a couple of caveats. Just looking at it now, one of the things I really like is the, um, the door on the back of the Sidewinder that gives you a great sort of... Um, feeling of sort of perspective about the image the fact that you know that's going to be sort of like a man-sized door right on the back of the first picture if you have a look at the federal um capital ship you can see the walkways that when walking around and ships come into uh, into play it'll be great to be able to walk down some of these sort of glass paneled corridors that run alongside the trench that they're flying through imagine if you were actually you know, in game and you saw this this action taking place but from the perspective of walking around and having a look outside one of those windows i think it'd be awesome you know, i didn't see it the first time I looked at them, someone else pointed out was there's a is it an imperial fighter um, in there somewhere and um, it looks like it's been hit on, on, on the shield and you can just see it lit up um, because that's something that we haven't seen for a while this 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 idea of shields we it was mentioned originally in, in one of the Kickstarter videos about the shapes of shields and different sh- ships will have different numbers of emitters and things like that and I wasn't on the DDF when they discussed it but um, it's good to see that they've got some functioning shields now at least I can't see that mate where's uh, where's that in the in the screenshots oh okay, yeah I can cool. see it actually which one um, so if you're looking at the thread with the sneak peeks, yeah, it's the fourth one down. It's the one with the big explosion on the left. Yeah, on the, the right. Imperial... Oh, can you see the two little engines, a little Imperial courier? I can. No, I've never spotted that before. No, neither have I. Okay, so that's going to do it for the development news for this week. What we'll do now is we'll go into the writers section. Now, Alan, what's been going on in the writers forum? Well, we've got a couple of things. Um, John Harper's finished his draft, which he's very happy about, and he sent it out to Alpha Readers. Alpha Readers being people who who pledged to his his funding on Indiegogo or Indiegogo, isn't it? Um, that uh, that pledged a certain tier and uh, then get a, an advanced copy. Um, they'll obviously go through it, work out a few questions that they have of him uh, and give him an idea of the experience that they're having and hopefully you know, it'll look to improve, I would guess, uh, based on the uh, the feedback that he gets. He's also he's been discussing a little bit with Michael and the Frontier guys about when they want their submission. And this is a bit chicken and egg, really, in that obviously Michael wants the submission to be as complete as possible and... John is kind of saying, well, when when it, it is complete. And so, you know, it kind of goes backwards and forwards. So, you know, we've, we're kind of trying to 
a little bit. Some of us, uh, the rest of the writers, are kind of trying to to gauge this as to well, what does as complete as possible mean? When is that in the process? Where do we fit it in? And um, what we're kind of assuming, and Drew has has come back on this, and a couple of other people have. What we're kind of assuming at the moment is that as soon as it goes to Frontier, it needs to have no conceptual changes that will be different for things in the game. So you want to be clear that you're not adding a new scene with another planet or a new scene with another ship or something like that. So, you know, the changes would only be effectively cosmetic, which I think is, is kind of where John is. But, um, you know, he's he's obviously negotiating that with um, with the guys at the moment in terms of what they're doing. Uh, Drew's over 100,000 words, which he's very happy about. So, you know, a little bit of news there in terms of what's going on. And the rest of us, mostly heads down and, and slogging away. There have been a couple of extra documents um, put out by Frontier, which uh, we've been able to, to access and have a look through. So they've been useful to give a bit of an overview of stuff. Less on the detail, more sort of general things, really. And yeah, so that's kind of where we are. Okay, so moving on to the next section, the Community Corner section. Okay, and just a quick shout-out for the next Elite Community Gathering, which is Elite Meet. That's happening on Saturday, the 2nd of November at the Premier Inn at Manchester Airport. If you're interested in that, you can go to the forums and check out the Elite Meet thread. The LaveCon competition, the competition to win a signed poster from the entire Cambridge development team that's working on Elite Dangerous, that's still in operation. Uh, We've had quite a few scripts come through, but we're always looking for a few more. To be in with a chance to win this one, you need to send us your best second technician scripts. So these are the scripts that we do where the wonderful second technician gets maimed, uh, injured, killed, and basically has a bad day. Uh, If you want to send us those scripts, you can do at info at laveradio.com to be in a chance to win that signed poster. And the other hot topic in community at the moment is that of music. Now, Alan, I think you've been doing some digging on this. Well, it's kind of my area in that, uh, you know, I've been doing some of the music. Um, We're actually, we're starting to get quite a lot of really nice stuff coming through in the forums and, you know, some really good uses of SoundCloud. So I'm kind of hoping that we're going to gradually form a little creative community around some of the composers that um, that are producing stuff. So a good shout out to Jamie Boo and also to PA Groove, who've both been producing stuff. PA Groove's been producing stuff for Oolite and, uh, and sort of other elements of the community-based constructed programs before Elite Dangerous was coming out, so he's you know he's got quite a track record of involvement with Elite and, and previous modifications, um, and some of his stuff is absolutely fantastic, so it's well worth a, a good listen. And Jamie Boo has just put out um, a rendition of the Frontier theme, which has been done in an orchestral score. And John, I believe you love it, don't you? Yeah, well, it's it's, it's definitely uh, one of the best that I've heard. It, it's kind of hard to take a 16-bit music track and and really bring it to life. But uh, I thought he managed to do it quite well. Yeah, no, he's what he's done is kind of, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I, I kind of felt there was a bit of Indiana Jones to it, to be honest. There's a, a little bit of the very John Williams-style orchestral element has sort of come across from it, which is, is great. So, you know, really nice to see a different arrangement of that, um, along with obviously Chris's guitar arrangement of the Frontier theme and uh, <laughs> Drew Wager's fantastic piano arrangement the frontier theme it's seeming to be a, a piece of music that everybody wants to to remix and remake um, which i think is you know is obviously is, is great because it you know it's very iconic to to the game itself it just better make it into the, the game otherwise there's gonna be a lot of disappointed people well it's, it's difficult i mean you know i looked at having produced the elite lave revolution album i looked at some of the older music and i thought about what tracks i was going to you know hark back to on my stuff and i thought i'm not going to go with the frontier theme because of the fact that someone else composed it and someone who you know is probably still alive and probably should deserve a royalty for that particular thing so i thought you know i, I probably need to be a bit careful because obviously mine's connected to a kickstarter but i think the the arrangements that have been produced on uh, on the forums and you know and and on chris's audio drama are fantastic so you know i wouldn't uh, cry anybody else's choice in that regard so yeah so you know really nice and of course other themes that um, that we'll be looking for more remixes of would be the blue danube and uh, perhaps i know night on bear mountain a few of the others that uh, that featured in the games what do you think i think that'd be fantastic and so alan am i correct in thinking that you guys have set up a uh, like a soundcloud group for the you know, elite dangerous or elite in general or is that something that you you'd hope to do in the future well the three of us are all on soundcloud and i've certainly i've connected up with the other two in that you know i favorited their tracks and and got them on my list of followers but soundcloud's a little tricky in terms of creating hubs but then you know we could put together an elite group 
in terms of music, which would be a great idea. And I'd be interested to know if there are any other, you know, users of SoundCloud and composers out there who are interested in in sort of joining in. And then we could kind of make it a very elite-centred group, I guess, in terms of music that the fans and uh, and the forum are producing. Yeah, no, that'd be fantastic. And we're always looking at adding, uh, you know, some examples of that community music work onto the end of these uh, these podcasts. So you know, if anybody is interested, then uh, drop us an email at info at laveradio.com and Alan will uh, connect with you and uh, put you, point you in the right direction. Okay, well, that's going to do it for Community Corner. All that's left for us to do is go into quickly into the feedback. And this week we've had iTunes feedback from... Uh, apologies straight away for the first one because I'm going to butcher your your, uh, your username. I'm going to call it Yad, but it's spelled V-Y-A-D-H. Uh, another review from Tino1980, Commander Movius, Commander Morpheus the German one, and Scratch 8. Thank you very much for taking the time and giving us some feedback on iTunes. We always like reading those. Chris, anything for Escape Velocity? Yeah, uh, Tino1980 popped up on there as well. Thank you very much. Okay, that's going to do it for this week. I'm going to power down the Sidewinder. All that's left to do is say thanks to Chris, Alan, and John. And playing us out this week is Jamie Treacher with his rendition of the Frontier theme.
the, the, basically the doctor said for me to steam my head right. twice a day, which I've not been bothering to do. I've been doing it once a day. Um, and I've got this spray that goes up my nose. Mm-hmm. And then a couple of lines of Charlie, and I'm sorted for the evening. Definitely try the antihistamines, mate. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's much cheaper than hard narcotics. <laughs> awesome. yeah. It's one pill a day, you know. Just do that. You'll feel much better. But I am closer to the uh, the hotel Wi-Fi router. So. Well, everything sounds fine. You know, so that's all right. What did you say, well, Chris? Yeah. He says asking in his most sensitive way. I was asking if Foss has been thrown out. Because he always seems to be in hotels. <laughs> no, I always seem to be on, uh, in hotels on a Thursday night, mate. That's the only thing. Oh, uh, okay. No, great stuff, mate. Congratulations. What's the, um, what's the title of your project going to be, or can you not say that without being uh, ripped off? You bastard. I'll have to go find it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best blooper ever. <laughs> Give me a minute. I will find this the title project that for you've you. given a lot of thought and you know heart and soul into that you can't remember the title of. <laughs> it's it's you know it's academia. It's on the tip of his tongue. It's <laughs> academia. The thing is with these titles is they are premise questions. So, an investigation and application of writing structures and world development techniques in science fiction and fantasy. There you are. Okay, Mr. Jarvis, what have you been up this week? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> it's not you like sounded kind of more Chris. camp if you tried. Chris, Chris, it's not that kind of call. One's going to be blank. Um, what this week? Okay, ask me again. <laughs> uh, could you actually find the MB4s in Frontier if somebody else put them down? That's a really stupid question to ask, considering <laughs> the Frontier wasn't a multiplayer game. So we'll just ignore me being quite dense. <laughs> so, Chris, what were you going to say? Moments passed. <laughs> so, Foz, um, are you going to go back and say astrological instead of astronomical? Ah, oh, bollocks, really? <laughs> yeah, do you want to go back and do that? Is it? No. <laughs> So you could basically you could pick up scientists and you know they might want to uh, request to go and see some astrological features uh, that you have to fly by and they can take readings for it. Brilliant, uh, <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. So we've got both. And John, can you use astrological because it's the wrong one? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, sussed what, I sussed what you were doing straight away, and I was like, "That's terrible! What a terrible thing to do!" <laughs> yes, yeah, so go out and research horoscopes out in deep space. What well, a boss. You're an arse. <laughs> Is this what it's come to now, where we're faking bloopers? Oh, I was just hoping he'd fall for it, and you know, Chris sort of—is it? I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, ast- well, it, actually, you know, there may be people that do want to go and see the Tropic of Cancer and stuff like that. So you could get astrological features. It's a possibility. It wouldn't be scientists. No, astrological scientists would be really interesting. Yes, this month there is a strange member rising in Uranus. Hmm, I'm not sure that's exactly what they're looking for. <laughs> Well, that's a good question as well. <laughs> and I think in terms of persistence, um, you know, once there was no one left in the system, then it, that, that gash, you know, <laughs> I need to s- stop using that Space word. Space gash. <laughs> so, so far this evening we've had space dogging and now space gash. It's just not working, guys. If these are in-game shots, guys, they're absolutely gorgeous, don't you think? Oh, I thought they looked blocky and crap. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> John's just breaking the consensus. <laughs>